Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. And as we do this evening, we will take up verses 15 to 17, and then what I want to do to really capture what I think to be so important in verses 15 to 17, get into some of the fall. So we'll look at then also Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And the point I will make there is how out from a careful study of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we have what we could say is absolutely foundational to better understand all of sacred scripture. And you might be saying to yourself, what? (laughs) All of sacred scripture, Joe, isn't that an embellishment? No. No, and I'm really only echoing St. Augustine in saying that, because what happens in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then as those series of verses anticipate, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, is really the groundwork into the why both the Old and New Testament is uh, laced with sacrifice. Okay, so out from that, (laughs) with time permitting, We will then go back into Genesis 2 and wrap up our series of reflections into the second creation account, going through those verses that have us considering so much about uh, life itself. All right, so chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Incidentally, my friends, the Hebrew in verse 17, and this will play itself out to be very important, uh, ought to read, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die a death. Okay, you shall die, but more specifically, you shall die a death. All right, we'll get to that. So, verses 15 to 17, what you have there is more or less the terms and conditions of the covenant made with Adam. The tree of life and the tree threatening death really, as the biblical commentaries speak to it, uh, represent the twin sanctions of the covenant. The tree of life, of course, the blessing, and the tree threatening death, of course, the curse. I I touched upon this, I think, yesterday. So Adam, in many ways, was to learn from these boundaries that God is not his equal, right? But his creator, who is also Father and Lord, right? Yahweh. The arrangement is really an ordeal designed to test Adam's faith and filial obedience. For those of you who were with me uh, last Thursday evening, And if you weren't, I I want to send you to my podcast dated, what was last Thursday evening, uh, December 7th, 
I talked about Abraham and really the lesson in Abraham's great faith is what but his filial obedience. So you see how Abram, who would then become who but Abraham, uh, made up for what was lacking in Adam's obedience. Now, all of that being said, revisiting here these verses, there are some important words that I think help us gain insight into the deeper meaning of what is going on in this narrative. And it starts with these words, till and keep, till and keep. In the Hebrew, abudah and shoman. What we have here is a threat to the order of paradise, huh? as there is this sense of keeping and guarding it, protecting it. We really have an anticipation of what is to happen as we know it now in chapter 3, verse 1. That is, the serpent wanting to gain access in the garden. Now, what's really important, I think, for us here is that the two Hebrew words in question, abodat and shaman, are used elsewhere in the Pentateuch. For what? But for the liturgical duties of priests and Levites serving as ministers and guardians over the tabernacle. If you were to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, chapter 8, verse 26, chapter 18, verses 5 to 6, there we read about these liturgical duties that uh, Levitical priests have to be serving as ministers and guardians over the tabernacle. For Eden is a sanctuary, a sacred sanctuary. Now, what about these words? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, you shall die a death. Again, we have an anticipation of what happens in the Garden of Eden. The question that begs to be asked is, what is intended to be understood in verse 17? Well, mortality, as well as uh, the spiritual death of estrangement from God, are the curse for transgressing the covenant with Adam. So essentially in verse 17, you have something playing out before us. If you allow Satan, the serpent, in the garden, you will die a physical death or a spiritual death. That is what is before Adam here, okay? Now, let us go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay, now what's really interesting in this narrative, in particular verses 1 to 5, is that in the serpent's address, we read him saying, you. 
right? You. And so it would suggest, as Eve is the one responding, that actually Adam isn't there. Maybe that's why the serpent got in. He just bailed. (laughs) But no, if you were to go into the Hebrew, what you will discover is that the you is actually a plural form, right? So as I've spoken to this before, you know, in our English, and maybe we can better say proper English, we don't have a plural for you. Maybe in the South, you'll hear y'all, but that's not proper English per se. And maybe that's what is needed in these series of verses, because in point of fact, Adam was there. But then the question that begs to be asked is, what happened? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, what did we read? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall die a death. Okay, so we know if the serpent got into the garden, there would be a death. The serpent slithered and snuck his way into the garden. And so Adam was going to have to die a death, either a physical death or a spiritual death. So what happened? (laughs) We know there was a spiritual death, but why? Why didn't Adam lay his life down? Well, it might have something to do with the fact that really in the Hebrew, uh, the Nahash for the serpent might be better translated as a kind of dragon. We also see the Nahash, the Hebrew word for serpent, in Isaiah chapter 27, I believe it is, where Satan is described as a dragon. So what you have going on in the Garden of Eden with the dragon, a much more imposing figure. So maybe Adam was intimidated, maybe he was overwhelmed. Whatever it might have been, we know that Adam did in fact allow the serpent in, the dragon in, whatever it was, and a death was to occur. And because Adam survived, we know that it was not a physical death but a spiritual death. So as (laughs) the dragon got in, the serpent got in, Adam was made to sacrifice and he didn't. He was called to lay his life down and he didn't. His life down for who? But his bride, that she would not die the spiritual death. Why does Paul in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 20, and in particular, verse 14, say that Christ is a new Adam. Well, Christ is the new man. Remember, Adam is Adam, the Hebrew for man. Christ is the new man, the new Adam, who what? Reverses the fortunes of what took place in the garden. How does he do that? How does he do that, my friends? In the garden of Eden, Adam failed to give his life. In a new garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, another man submitted to the Father's will. And he said, to reverse the fortunes of the old man, I will submit to your will all the way unto the cross. And as I submit myself to the cross, I will lay myself down for my bride. Well, who's the bride? Brothers and sisters, Pay close attention to the gospel narratives when it talks about the bride and the bridegroom. We are the bride. The church is the bride. So he lays his life down for his bride, you and me, the church. And as he does so, he does so on what? 
a tree, a tree. Just as a tree was accidental, and I say accidental in Thomistic terms, that which belongs to matter, right? (laughs) Just as the tree was accidental to the fall, so is the new tree accidental. The matter needed in the restoration. Just as Adam was silent in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus Christ cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talk about bride and bridegroom. Just as Eve comes from the side of Adam, so does the new woman in the church come from the side of Christ in the blood and water of Christ. Of course, the blood and water symbolizing the Eucharist and baptism. Such rich imagery here. All of which, my friends, all of which is to be understood in light of Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, what then takes place in the beginning of chapter 3 in the fall, and of course to then fast forward to Christ in the garden and on the cross. Now, I spoke earlier about how what takes place in uh, the narrative of Genesis 2 and 3 sets up all of sacred scripture. It does so because, again, what was missing in the Garden of Eden but Adam's failure to sacrifice. Why do we see, my friends, sacrifice as necessary for every major covenant with God because it atones for the absence of sacrifice with Adam? Huh? Every major covenant. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all of these major covenant figures and major covenant motifs bring us back to Adam. Why? Because there was an absence of sacrifice. And so as God's family expands from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, as it expands from a household to a tribe to a nation to a kingdom, it does so as it projects to Christ. Because Christ is the one true definitive sacrifice that perfects all covenants and brings us in that dynamic relationship with God. Isn't that exciting stuff? This, to me, is exciting, exciting stuff. That when you talk about covenant, you're talking about not that which belongs to things, but that which belongs to persons. Right? Not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This kind of mutual self-gift. This is what perfects covenant life. What was missing in the Garden of Eden was fulfilled, transformed, and perfected in Christ. And what took place post-Garden of Eden up until Christ was a kind of quasi-atonement, if you will, (laughs) that was only going to lead to Christ. What's really interesting, if you follow these covenants from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, is to see that this is a covenant that expands in its family dimension. If households are bigger than couples, and tribes bigger than households, and nations bigger than tribes, and kingdoms bigger than nations, how does the covenant continue to expand with Christ? If kingdoms rule nations, the only way you can get bigger is to call something global, universal, and that's the covenant that Jesus made with man. Incidentally, my friends, when you talk about the word Catholic, what does it mean? Where does it come from? Uh, The word Catholic comes from the Greek katholike, which means literally universal. So God desires to enter into this 
international universal covenant with man, and he does so in and through the sacramental life, and most especially the Eucharist. Okay, so I know this is a lot to to talk about and, and to think about, but be rest assured, my friends, this is the stuff of what the Church Fathers do, uh, certainly what St. Augustine treats, and I dare say many contemporaries have reflected upon because it's so important for us to better understand how in the bookends of sacred scripture, that is Genesis and Revelation, you really do have a kind of continuity, and a continuity that can only be understood in light of sacrifice, in light of covenant. Huh? And this is important for all of us because in the end, it's about better understanding where we come from, why we do what we do, and ultimately where we are going and how we might be better equipped to be at the service of where we are going. All right, with the remainder of our time, let us get back into, oh, let us pick up with verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field, but for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. All right, verse 18, a helper fit for him. Now, verse 18 very much anticipates the creation of woman, though, of course, other living creatures are fashioned first. The fact that woman comes last is not the result of trial and error, but in many ways is God's way of teaching man that he is fundamentally different from the animals, right? Fundamentally different. Lower life forms, my friends, dogs, cats, rabbits, they're all great, don't get me wrong. I've had my share of pets growing up and became quite close with my dogs, okay? But uh, these creatures, these animals don't have free will, right? They don't have the capacity to reason through things. And ultimately, we need that kind of companionship. So, would we have woman, right? Woman. Now, in verses 21 to 24, you really have in this creation account and on the heels of the creation account, the institution of the marriage covenant, which of course is designed by God to be intimate, one flesh, as verse 24 says one flesh, heterosexual, man and woman, right? Verse 23, mutually supportive. What do we read in verse 18? It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So there's this mutuality in supporting one another, which very much speaks to the covenant we were just talking about. Not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. This, my friends, is the kind of mutuality that we are talking about reciprocity, if you will. It is always a fascinating thing to me 
when reflecting upon Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 32, that we spend so much time focusing on the role of the woman to be subordinate to man. Okay, fine. Yeah, certainly Ephesians gets into that. But what else does St. Paul say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church. Well, how did Christ love his church? Christ laid his life down for his church. So here we are talking about the importance of women being subordinate to their husbands. When in reality, we should always at the same time be talking about how husbands are called to lay their lives down like Christ laid his life down for his church. When men sacrifice for their spouses, for their wives, my dear friends, what you have is a marriage that will be life-giving. Why? Because what is the wife going to want to do, right? (laughs) But mutually serve. This is the nature of love. The more you give, well, the more you will want to give. And the more you do this, when that gift is received, the receiver of that gift will also want to love in return. And herein lies the beauty of marriage, because then you have love shared. And is this not the very reflection of the Trinity itself, where in the Trinity you have love given, love received, and love shared, love given in the Father, love received in the Son, and love shared in the Holy Spirit? This is what marriages should be about. Love given, love received, and love shared. And certainly, as we reflect into the institution of the marriage covenant, going all the way back into Genesis 2, this is what you have. And as you share this love, what does Genesis also say? Be fruitful and multiply. So it is a marriage covenant that is also procreative, right? It's just not about the bonding. It's also about the babies, okay? So the institution of the marriage covenant, if you were to just reflect into verses 18 to 24, speak to this call to be intimate, one flesh, of course, heterosexual man and woman, mutually supportive and procreative. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, Jesus actually teaches from this text that God designed marriage to be a permanent union of spouses. And as such, it symbolizes the unbreakable bond between Christ and his spiritual bride. That unbreakable bond between Christ and and his spiritual bride, the church. I should say something else about verse 20, because I do think it's important. The man gave names to all cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam's first act of uh, sovereignty over the animal kingdom was to what? Identify it with name, and exercise authority over it. This was certainly something you would see in the ancient world. How about the rib as we treated when we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The first woman is created from the substance of the first man, right? So the rib also speaks to the substance of the first man. And her sexual distinction from the man shows that the two are literally made for each other right? Made for each other. 
Yesterday I was talking about how we are just not biological, but to some degree because we have the soul theological, right? Theological. And when you hear that phrase made for each other, we are to see that what is biology is also intended to be theological. Remember that the word theology is, yes, the study of God, but it is probably best translated as faith-seeking understanding. There is what we have talked about in the past called a theology of the body, that is, a theology to our biology. And when you understand this, that there is a theology to our biology, within the context of how we are made for each other, we can then begin to grasp the beauty of who we are as created in the image and likeness of God. That in the male, you have the giver. In the female, you have the receiver. And when the two become one, you have this kind of profound union that is symbolic of Christ and his church. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. If Again, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l jmj at yahoo.com. I, I know we, we talked about some pretty dense stuff this evening, but I thought it was necessary because, my friends, this kind of thing is so important if we're going to really get at what is underneath sacred scripture. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening the gift to be able to reflect into the richness and beauty of your inspired word, the book of Genesis, where you teach us so much about just not creation, but about ourselves. And for this, we give you praise and glory. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.